Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 137, Thoughts, Words, and Works. No one likes to be deceived. (laughs) We detest being lied to. We don't like being manipulated or conned for that matter. There's a reason why these acts feel violating or insulting and sometimes even dangerous. It's because lies, deceit, and craftiness, these are all devices of the devil. And they are always designed and used to gain unrighteous authority or power over an individual or a large group of people. And these devices are the tools that lay the foundation of the devil and his kingdom. And he uses traps and snares to catch the holy ones of God. He elevates our pride or our enmity or our opposition to God. His plan is to pervert the ways of righteousness, and whether it be in our most intimate relationships or in our institutions of society, when they are used and when they're tolerated, these devices affect our soul. They remove our freedom to be able to either embrace truth or recognize it in the first place. And then we feel being that we're being acted upon as we're stirred up to anger and false beliefs, and eventually we realize that we have been chained down. We are in subjection to the lies and the deceits that are working upon us. It's everything that we actually wish to avoid, but yet the reality is that this is the war that we're spiritually fighting against. And I know it's been a long time since I've done a podcast, so thank you so much for tuning back into me today. But for me, it feels like I have been stuck in the city of Ammonihah for months. Truthfully, I'm sort of ready to leave it. Though I haven't done a podcast for you, I have revisited this chapter 12 over and over again numerous times these past six months. And the more that I have, the more alarmed I've grown. Because when I read scripture, I liken it to our experiences and our day. Remember, the people of Ammonihah, they were Nephites. They had been exposed to the doctrine of Christ, and they were familiar enough with the church. So familiar, in fact, that they reminded Alma on his first visit to preach to them that he had no authority over them. Not only was he no longer their chief judge of the land, he was the high priest of a church in which they said they did not belong to. They no longer believed in his foolish traditions. They were of the order of Nehor. Nehor, who practiced priestcraft and who attacked the church while proclaiming that he taught the word of God. He organized a paid clergy, yes, but he also taught that all mankind would be saved, which isn't completely true. All mankind can be saved. The atonement is infinite, but not all are going to utilize the gift of the atonement. Not all are going to abide by its conditions. So the order of Nehor became the ultimate eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die religion, taking no responsibility for their transgressions and also not believing in the resurrection, which is kind of like a a double whammy 
for Satan just to lay his snares. Because think about it, what a perfect opportunity for him to create enmity between man and God by not only convincing them that there's no need to repent, but also rushing them further away from God and discouraging them to seek after his holier ways of thought and action. This religion didn't require man to put off the natural man and to remember that they're a child of God. They didn't need to forsake the natural man's needs or desires or impulses and inclinations. No, those were embraced. Then, if you look at their law and their order, you see the influence that their lawyers and their judges had upon the temperament of this city. These lawyers and these judges, whom the people proudly selected to govern them, were not only after the order of Nehor, but they were intentionally stirring the people up in all manner of disturbance and wickedness because trouble and chaos directly correlated with the increase of their riches. Think about it. More time in the judgment seat or more disputes to be tried, more clients to represent, more crimes being committed, only profited those judges and lawyers. And Alma notes that the lawyers especially were expert in the devices of the devil, especially Zizrim. In the last episode, we learned about the deceit in which Zizrim tried to entrap Amulek with. However, he wasn't successful, and Zizrim was astonished, and he trembled exceedingly. He knew that he had been caught in his lies and deceptions, and he was all of a sudden becoming very aware of his own guilt. In fact, he began to recognize a truth about God that he had not considered before. And this truth is found in at least three out of the four standard works. I could actually make a case that it is found in the Pearl of Great Price, but I didn't want to overstep the mark. I'm satisfied with three out of four. I think that's pretty good. And that is the truth that God knows all of our thoughts. In philosophy class, remember, it's called omniscient. It's one of those omnis. And in scripture, we're taught in Genesis that from the beginning, God knew every imagination of the thoughts of man's hearts. Later, Job confesses to God that he knows that God knows his thoughts. Isaiah captures this truth when he writes, For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. During the Savior's mortal ministry in the New Testament, periodically he revealed that he knew the doubtful and contentious thoughts of the Pharisees. He knew the questions among his apostles, wondering who was the greatest among them. And he also knew their fear without them needing to express it. When he appeared before them in his resurrected state, he knew all of their thoughts. The Lord made it clear to Oliver Cowdery Even though a revelation was being given through Joseph Smith, there was no possible way that Joseph knew Oliver's personal yearnings, but the Lord knew his thoughts. And the Lord reminded Oliver how he had enlightened Oliver's mind by the spirit of truth. Do you see that? The Lord knew Oliver's thoughts, and then he enlightened Oliver with truthful thoughts. And then there are the times in the Book of Mormon when the Savior himself knew the thoughts of his disciples. His disciples didn't even have to answer his question. He knew their thoughts, and therefore he granted their desires and allowing them to be able to stay on the earth until he returns again. 
and that their work would be to bring souls unto Christ. And sometimes the Lord enables his servants to know the thoughts of the people that they're testifying to. It actually enables them to penetrate through the thick layer of lies and resistance to truth that the people may be having in the moment. Actually giving those present and listening the chance to forsake the chains that they are bound by and to grasp onto the lifeline of truth that those prophets are offering them. Jacob, the brother of Nephi, had that experience when he taught the Nephites, and Alma and Amulek had that same experience with Zizram. There was no guessing for them if they were dealing with truth or lies. No, the Lord had made it really clear for all those willing to hear that Alma and Amulek could see the subtle plan of the devil. They knew that Zizrim was attempting to deceive the people, set them against Alma and Amulek so that the people would revile against these men of God and then cast them out of the city. This was the plan, and Alma testified to Zizrim that his attempt to work this plan was evidence that the adversary was working his power through him. What a sobering statement. Zizrim then gets really curious <laughs> about the kingdom of God. He's listening now, and he wants to know, what did Amulek mean by saying that there's a resurrection? What did he mean that both the just and the unjust would rise from the dead and stand before God to be judged according to their works? And isn't that an interesting question for a lawyer such as Zizram to ask? (laughs) I'm sure that there was some fear in his heart knowing that this might be required of him to do one day. He who had manipulated the courtroom on behalf of his clients, whether his clients had been just or unjust. He who was skilled in his craft of cunning and unashamedly using that, even against the holy men like Alma and Amulek. I am sure that Zizram felt some vulnerability about what his particular judgment experience was going to be like. And then to know that God knew all of his thoughts anyway. I'm sure this truth did leave him trembling. And it's here that Alma provides for us the doctrine, the promise really, that God's mysterious ways do not need to remain mysterious. Or in other words, Zizram, you can come to know the mysteries of God. People of Ammonihah who are listening, you can come to know his mysteries too. God and his mysteries, he will make it known unto us. He'll make it known unto those who heed him and who are diligently following him. Because God knows our thoughts, our words, and our works. He is willing to give more light and knowledge to a child who is choosing him. That makes sense, right? And remember, when we're talking about the mysteries of God, we're referring to the ways that we obtain salvation and the ways we come unto him. And I would also add from my personal experience, it's also an opening up and better understanding of his ways, a better understanding of his true nature. And then you begin to be tutored on how the Lord looks upon the world and its workings, but most importantly, your workings. So again, we see that God's mysteries are predicated on our heed and our diligence to him, which then, turn the opposite, makes the opposite also true. For those who harden their hearts against him, they will receive a lesser portion of his mysteries. Until Alma teaches 
that they eventually know nothing anymore. And Dhamma explains that this is what the scripture means when it says, when it refers to the chains of hell. That means the not knowing anymore. Those are the chains. The ignorance that our sin leaves behind within us. Because remember, to know his mysteries, don't make them ours for our keeping. They are still his, and he can and he will take his truths back unto himself, leaving us subjected to the father of lies whom we've chosen. And what God will look at when we stand before him is whether his word can be found within us. And it will be our thoughts and our words and our works that will condemn us or expose us. We won't dare to look at God and we would be glad to have the rocks and the mountains fall upon us so that we can hide from his presence. That's what Alma explains it will be like if those thoughts, words, and works condemn us. Okay, so that's a lot of history context and a lot of doctrine. So let's just pause for a moment and liken these truths that we learn from Alma chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Let's liken them to ourselves, to today. In no particular order, we learn that first, that the space that truth holds on the spectrum actually holds a very small real estate compared to the degrees that deception takes up. You can call them all sorts of things omission, white lies, small lies, half-truths, or mistruths. But any degree of deception that is added to a truth begins to taint it, and it affects our liberty. You know that's true. You know the feelings that mistruth creates within you. They are not feelings of the Spirit. Next, we learn how closely our thoughts, our words, and our works are connected one another. They are not independent of one another. These will all play either either to our joy and progress in light and knowledge of God's mysteries, or they will condemn us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we also know that true as well. It is up to us, however, to learn how to slow down, to recognize when our spirits are experiencing confusion or insecurity or frustration. We need to train ourselves to ask, What is the lie that I'm believing right now? What is the lie that I'm telling myself? What's the mistruth that someone else is telling me? Having the gift of the Holy Ghost like you do enables you to be able to have these sensibilities. And we must recognize the discord within us and then seek after light instead. We can do something about it is basically what I'm trying to tell you. So take, for example, the lies that you tell yourself and the impact that it has on your spirit. Just think about the last time that your mind was giving you a bunch of lies and the heaviness that you felt and the doubt and the insecurity, the diminishing of your, of your confidence, and even the shame you felt. Have you ever considered that the reason why you are feeling any of those things is not because you are standing in truth. It's because you're swimming in deception or false beliefs or lies, whatever you want to call it. And how does that feel in that moment? Doesn't it feel like you would be glad if the rocks and the mountains would fall upon you and hide you from the presence of God or from a family member or a close friend? Or that woman that you don't even know her name, but you see her at the school drop-off and for some reason, 
You become a ball of seventh grade anxiety. (laughs) What lies are you telling yourself in that moment? And instead of misinterpreting them to be truth, be on to yourself. Expose them as the lies that they are and rid yourself of them. The next truth that we learn from Alma is that Even if we are deceived in the moment by the myriad of lies that are around us, God is not. We can turn to him. And further, he knows our thoughts. And so try as we may, we can never deceive him either. Done. Another truth that we learn from Alma, and I can't remember (laughs) if I mentioned it before, but Alma testified to Zizram that not only had Zizram lied unto men, for example, to Amulek, to Alma, to the people there around them, to Zizram's past clients, his neighbors, his colleagues, but in so doing, he had lied unto God. Again, God knows the thoughts of men, and I think that we neglect to fully understand the connection between our treatment of our fellow men and our treatment of God. We learn from King Benjamin that when we are in the service of our fellow beings, we are only in the service of our God. Look at that connection, that relationship. We serve people, we are then serving God. And if you switch that around, if you take the opposite and examine this truth, if we mistreat people, we mistreat God. Or if we lie to people, we are lying to God. Do you see that? Our relationships with others are a reflection of our relationship with God. So I think you can easily insert the importance and the gravity of the first and the second great commandments. We love God. We love others as we love ourselves. These are, it's a triad of relationships that uphold one another, that impact one another. For example, the relationship that you have with yourself and others. The truth or the mistruth that you choose to stand in is directly related to your relationship with God. And all of the degrees of truth that you're standing in determines what influence you are subject to, which master you're serving, liberty or captivity, light or darkness. Can you see how the mysteries of God just here in these 19 verses You unpack them. They unfold for you. Can you imagine the lift and the joy that you would experience if you just heeded and were diligent to these mysteries? It's major accountability (laughs) and responsibility. I know it's a life's work to do. And it may feel overwhelming because it is truly a big responsibility to be 100% responsible for your thoughts, your words, and your works. But think upon this. Back to the doctrine, Alma teaches that the day will come when we must stand before God in His glory, in His power, in His might, and in His majesty and dominion. And we're going to acknowledge to our everlasting shame that His judgments are just and His works are just, that He is merciful unto us, and that He has the power to save every man that believes on His name and brings forth fruit, meat for repentance. And I believe that that fruit that we bring is going to be our thoughts, our words, and our works. So now this scripture for me is both glorious and also intimidating, especially that everlasting shame part, right? (laughs) But I love how closely correlated 
it is with Doctrine and Covenants section 121 verses 45 through 46. In fact, these are the scriptures that are foundational for my coaching practice. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith. And let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means, it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. I love how through charity and virtuous thoughts, we don't need to experience the everlasting shame that Alma describes, but that we can stand in the presence of God in confidence with power and might because of the power of the priesthood he has distilled upon us, in majesty and dominion because our thoughts and therefore our words and our works are pure and powerful, because the Holy Ghost has been our constant companion, enabling us to have dominion over our stewardships, and it's flowing unto us forever and ever, flowing, not compulsory, but flowing Our thoughts are power. They are the seeds of our creations. They either give us light or they snuff it out. They support us in confidence or they cause us to want to hide. They qualify us to receive more mysteries of God or they cause us to lose the knowledge until we have nothing. They are the beginnings of our agency and they matter. And I have seen lives improved, including mine, As I practice the principles that we've learned here and how I learn to manage the creative power that I've been given. And I don't let my brain run away on on a runaway track of negativity. If you recognize that you're in need of having kinder thoughts about yourself, if you're experiencing limiting beliefs that are holding you back and it's preventing you from being able to have a loving relationship with yourself, which you know is needed in order for you to be able to have those relationships with others and with God, contact me. From now until the end of the year, I'm taking coaching clients and I offer a package of 10 sessions for $200 and it's one-on-one coaching with me. This is unheard of. So come and sign up. Come to me with the desires that you have to grow and I'll show you how to be able to eliminate or see at least, and then work on eliminating the deceptive lies that are stopping you from being able to propel yourself forward. And my prices are going to go up next year, but I will honor this year's pricing to whoever gets on my waiting list. So email me at carrie at sisterscriptorians.com, and then you and I can take it from there. You have more power within you than you realize. I want you to know that. And it's because of the heat and the diligence that you're giving your covenants. I promise you. And next week, we'll learn more about the power of God that we've been greatly blessed and enhanced by and how it literally is this last olive branch of hope that Alma is offering the people of Ammonihah. All right, I'll see you next week.